Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It seems like not a week that goes by in 2020 does so without another reminder of the systemic racism that has been a part of daily life for communities of color in the United States for generations, but is now, at long last, coming to be understood by large parts of the majority white population. A few days ago, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times in front of his children by a white police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was left paralyzed from the waist down. Blake's name is now added to those of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and so many others who have paid the ultimate price at the hands of police who continue to display significant lapses in judgment, demonstrating over and over again that equality in the eyes of the justice system, anyways, remains a long way away. I've spoken on several recent episodes on this podcast of the importance of increasing diversity in triathlon. Because if our sport does not represent the population of the places where it takes place, then it can never truly be anything more than an elitist, niche activity. Triathlon has a huge opportunity to broaden its reach to communities of color and to make itself welcoming and an example of social justice and racial equity, where access to the sport is unhindered by societal injustices and ability determines outcome. Well, I'm really excited and hopeful about the messages that have been coming out of USA Triathlon over the past week in this regard. First, Marcus Fitz, founder of District Triathlon and Grit USA, and a guest on this very show, was featured on the cover of USAT magazine. The first time that I can remember a black man on the cover, and I would wager it's not going to be the last. In addition, USAT sent out notice of their new initiative called Together We Thrive, the main drivers of which are improved diversity, equity, inclusion, and access to the sport. In their message, USAT acknowledges that in the past they've been long on words and short on actions, and commit to doing better. More importantly, they define and outline concrete steps that they are taking to ensure that this time around things are going to be different, and that the leadership of USAT is very committed to making triathlon a beacon of racial and social justice. I, for one, am very excited at the potential for this program, and have signed on to help in whatever way that I can, and I hope that you will as well. You can find more information and sign up at usatriathlon.org forward slash thrive. Now, I don't pretend that increased diversity in triathlon can mend all that ails this country with respect to the systemic racism and the continued issues related to police violence against people of color. But in my mind, it certainly can't hurt. And any way that we can bring people together and celebrate our sameness instead of looking for our differences sounds like an incremental move towards a better place to me. On the show today, I talked to Bill Plock, the owner and operator of a Colorado multi-sport social media success story. 303 Cycling and 303 Triathlon have become go-to websites and social media feeds here in the mountain region for years, and Bill is a big reason why. He joins me to discuss the effects of the pandemic on his business, as well as those of the race directors here in the Rocky Mountain region, and what we might be able to look forward to in 2021. Before that, though, I have a medical question to answer. I know that I don't have to tell any of you about Kinesio Tape. It's become one of the most widely used products in athletics since it was seen used by many athletes at the Olympics in Beijing in 2008. The real question, though, is why is it so popular? Does it do any of the things that its makers and supporters say it does, or is it really just fancy racing stripes for athletes? As always, I dig into the science so you don't have to, and that's coming up right now. 
I know that at some point in time, you've all seen the meme. A heavyset woman standing on a beach waiting to start the swim portion of her triathlon. What makes this photograph a meme is the fact that pretty much every square centimeter of exposed skin is covered by that multicolored, ubiquitous accessory seen at all multi-sports events, kinesio tape. In this case, the kinesio tape is pretty much the same color as the woman's swimsuit, and so it makes for a lot of light blue. Now, although I have touched on the subject of kinesio tape before in written form, somehow I've made it through almost 50 episodes of this podcast without my sticking it to this stuff, but that ends today. It's time for a long overdue discussion about everything you may have heard about kinesio tape, what it can do for you, and a look at the evidence out there that does, or as you are soon to find out, really does not support any of it. Now, I know that all of you know what kinesio tape is. It's that elastic, often neon-colored tape that people wear all over their bodies during races and often afterwards. But if we're going to get into the science of this stuff, we need to be a little bit more specific. Kenzo Kase, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was a Japanese-American chiropractor who is credited with inventing kinesio tape back in 1974. Up to that point, taping was used by physiotherapists and other practitioners to stabilize joints that had been injured or were at risk of being injured using strong inelastic tape that was applied almost like a cast to reinforce joints and prevent unwanted injurious movements. Think about taping an ankle to stiffen it to prevent rolling. Well, kinesio tape differs from regular tape in that it is strongly elastic and can stretch anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of its length. By applying the tape in its stretched form, the tape tries to return to its normal length and produces a significant pull on the skin and theoretically the underlying tissues, and this is where it's purported to confer all of its benefits. Over the years since its introduction, kinesio tape has essentially been promoted as having its main benefits under three overarching purposes. Those are injury rehabilitation, injury prevention, and enhanced performance. Kinesio tape got a huge break and a big boon in its publicity when it showed up on athletes in 2008 at the Beijing Olympics. After that, there was an explosion in interest in the stuff, and it wasn't long before amateur athletes were sporting it in all of its resplendent colors. So let's look at each of the advertised benefits of kinesio tape, the theoretical means by which the tape is said to lead to them, and the research that's been done to validate those assertions. Now, the first of the benefits of kinesio tape is a reduction in pain associated with injury. And the proposed mechanism for the pain-relieving effect of kinesio tape is through the stimulation of sensory pathways in the nervous system. This, it is said, is hypothesized to diminish the input from nerve fibers that conduct pain sensation due to what's called the gate control theory. Now, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but stick with me. Essentially, the gate control theory posits that by overwhelming local pain receptors, you shut a gate that blocks the conduction of pain to the brain. So while pain is still occurring, it's simply not sensed. And this is the mechanism by which capsaicin cream, for example, works on painful rashes such as shingles. Now, an additional theory is that kinesio tape application lifts the skin and directly reduces pressure on subcutaneous pain fibers. Well, several studies have looked at this question, and the findings have been mixed to date. In one of the best studies done that looked specifically at whether or not kinesio tape could reduce pain, 
there was a statistically significant reduction in pain that was observed when it was compared to placebo, but the actual reduction was trivial. And this goes back to something that I've mentioned several times previously on this podcast. Understanding the difference between statistically significant differences and clinically significant differences. And this is one more, uh, one more time when this comes up. So in this study, the authors were able to find that, yes, kinesio taping does indeed provide a statistically significant difference. The two numbers that were found, number one associated with kinesio tape, was statistically different from number two found with a placebo. But number one and number two were still very close together, such that clinically there was no difference. So basically, based on the cumulative evidence, kinesio tape has not really been shown to have any clinically important benefits in reducing pain from injury, even though there have been some studies that have shown statistically significant results. A second way in which kinesio tape is said to help athletes is by improving range of motion after an injury. Now, one proposed mechanism for the effect of kinesio tape to do this is through improving active range of motion by increasing the circulation of blood to the taped area. This is a physiological change that can facilitate an increased range of motion within a muscle that would otherwise be really tight and stiff. An additional theory is that fear of movement or decreased range of motion is associated with pain intensity in patients who have sustained an injury. And so the application of kinesio tape provides sensory feedback that reduces fear of movement and thus increases range of motion. Well, several studies have attempted to evaluate this question across different joints and have shown mixed results. In one study, there was a benefit shown for improved range of motion of the shoulder after specific types of injuries, but the effect didn't last very long over time. The result was clinically significant, though, and this led researchers to conclude that kinesio taping had at least a small, immediate effect on pain-free shoulder range of motion, but that it was unlikely to have a beneficial longer-term effect. And the magnitude of that clinical effect was quite small, and therefore it wasn't really clear how important it was. Well, some other studies have looked at kinesio tape for improving range of motion in other joints, such as the neck after a whiplash injury, and found that overall kinesio taping had a very trivial effect on cervical range of motion for the vast majority of cervical motions. And this was both in the acute phase and then again 24 hours after treatment. And similar results have been reported for shoulder impingement syndrome, which is more of a chronic problem than an acute injury, as well as low back mobility issues. Essentially, in these cases, kinesio tape has no benefits and is really not recommended. Now, for specific injuries to, say, the shoulder, you can make the argument that perhaps you might get some mild increased range of motion early on, but not something that's going to last very long. And you can make a determination as to whether or not that's something that might actually be beneficial to you. Well, kinesio tape has also been suggested to improve athletic performance, specifically through its ability to improve muscle strength. And this is obviously going to be of interest to triathletes, because who wouldn't want to apply some colorful elastic tape and then suddenly find themselves able to push the pedals harder? Well, here the evidence is really conflicting, with a handful of studies demonstrating that, yes, indeed, kinesio taping can boost muscle strength, particularly in the lower extremities. But for every paper that shows a positive result, I came across one or even two more that show exactly the opposite. 
One study that I came across took this contradiction to the extreme finding, where they demonstrated that there was no benefit in soccer players in terms of their ability to kick a soccer ball at a high velocity, except for those who really weren't any good. In that subset, soccer players without much skill, there appeared to be a very minor improvement if you had kinesio taping done. So I guess if you aren't a very good soccer player, this might be worthwhile exploring. The question is, if you are only a beginner runner, beginner cyclist, will kinesio taping translate to some increase in strength? That has never been looked at. Another paper that I looked at evaluated kinesio taping in people who had injuries, specifically injured Achilles tendon. And this one definitely showed that there was no benefit at all to kinesiotaping in either reducing pain across the Achilles or improving strength in terms of the ability to use the lower leg to do things like hopping or jumping. Still, the evidence on the ability of kinesiotaping to improve muscle strength is very much all over the place, with studies of varying quality showing results on both sides of the question. Consequently, all that can really be said is that there is some evidence for kinesiotaping having at least a small beneficial effect on strength. However, given the heterogeneity of the findings across so many studies, it really precludes a clear conclusion being made. And if there was really a strong benefit of kinesiotaping, it should have been seen by this point. Now, proprioception is the sensation of where body parts are in space in relation to each other. Increased proprioception is felt to be important in reducing injuries. For example, someone with heightened proprioception would be able to detect their ankle rolling soon enough to do something about it and prevent it from actually completing that movement and potentially injuring themselves. So one of the purported efficacies of kinesiotaping is in improving proprioception, and that obviously is of great interest to athletes. The pressure and stretching effect of kinesiotaping on the skin is believed to stimulate cutaneous mechanoreceptors, which in turn conveys information about joint position and movement, and therefore can enhance proprioception. Now, this area has the fewest studies for evaluating this question, and those that have been done have demonstrated, once again, very much conflicting results. While there are no studies that definitively demonstrate that kinesiotaping does not work to enhance proprioception and thus prevent injuries, there are unfortunately no studies that show the opposite either. That is to say, there are no studies that demonstrate that kinesiotaping can make an athlete more prone to injury. Consequently, this is yet another area in which no definitive conclusions can be made, but kinesiotaping has clearly not been shown to actually work to prevent injuries. Now, there are various other potential indications for kinesiotaping. These include certain neurologic disorders and disorders of lymphatic drainage. And here, fewer studies have been done, but even with fewer and smaller studies, kinesiotaping was, again, not found to be beneficial. Now, I know this can be disheartening to some. I'm well aware of the wonderful advertising that makers of kinesiotape have done, not to mention the passionate cheerleading by the principal users of the stuff, physiotherapists. And many athletes will have six-packs of neon-colored kinesiotape lying about, and may now be thinking to themselves, but wait, I really love this stuff. Even if there isn't great evidence to support its use, it just looks so darn cool. Well, I can't completely argue that point. Though I may not agree completely on the fashion merits of kinesiotaping, the colors can accentuate kits when the colors are right and if it's not over-applied. But wait, we know that color can have an impact on athletic performance. 
Is it possible that the color of kinesio tape itself is somehow beneficial? Because this would be a pretty cool question to try and answer. And I don't think I could tell you how excited I was to find out that some researchers from London tried to do exactly that with a very ingenious study. A group of physiotherapists reasoned that in the face of research that has previously shown that teams wearing certain colors, for example red, perform better than expected over time against teams in other colors, that would be wearing, for example, blue, it is possible that an athlete with red kinesio taping might perform better than one who had blue kinesio taping. At least that was the question they wanted to answer with this study. In what is probably the best study of all the ones that I've reviewed, and I mean that because it was methodically done, but also because it had just a great question. These folks did a complicated crossover design in which they measured athletes' performance when taped with beige kinesio taping with and without tension. So without tension would be essentially a placebo. And then with red or blue kinesio taping with tension. They surmised that kinesio taping would be better than no kinesio taping and that the color of the tape could be associated with performance increase as well, where red would be best, blue in the middle, and beige the least effective. In the end, though, I'm guessing you won't be too surprised to find that the research was in line with most of the other papers that I've referenced so far, and that is to say that kinesio taping conferred no benefit over no kinesio taping, and the color of the tape really didn't make a single iota of difference in any measures of performance. Well, so much for the lovely colors. So where does this leave us? Well, it seems pretty clear that kinesio taping does not confer any benefits in any of the areas that it is advertised to with respect to either injury rehabilitation, injury prevention, or performance enhancement. However, it's also fair to say that there's no evidence to suggest that kinesio taping causes any harm. So at the end of all of this, my advice is going to be pretty neutral. While there's really no reason to use this stuff, if you like it and it makes you feel better, then honestly, there's really no good reason not to, since it's unlikely to hurt you. Just don't expect any benefits, aside from the style points, if you are super matchy-matchy. Whatever you do, though, do not duplicate the efforts of the lady in the meme. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. On today's episode of the TriDoc Podcast, I'm really excited to welcome a Colorado native who's been in and around the triathlon scene for quite some time to talk about what he has seen going on during this year of pandemic and what he foresees for the future. Bill Clock has uh, been in and around triathlon and cycling for a little over 10 years, fell in love with the lifestyle, completed a few races, including eight Ironmans, did okay in them, and decided to make it a career, and then went on to buy 303 Triathlon and 303 Cycling in 2017. He loves bringing inspirational stories to athletes and connecting the endurance community through their websites, and does a weekly podcast called 303 Endurance. He's now here to join me today, though, on the TriDoc Podcast. Bill, thank you so much for taking your time and uh, taking a few minutes to talk triathlon and uh, how it's been impacted in Colorado. Oh, of course. My pleasure. It's great to connect and looking forward to uh, a discussion for sure. Yeah. So why don't you give us a, a little bit of uh, background? Not everybody who listens is uh, native to Colorado. So tell us about 303 Cycling and uh, 303 Triathlon, which I know you have told me is going to be combined in uh, the near future. Yeah, hopefully it will get it finally done to 
call it 303 endurance. And, um, because I think that's just a broader stroke of what the lifestyle that we want to embrace and report on and inspire more of, um, not just cycling, not just triathlon. I mean, those are huge components, obviously. And we started out as 303 cycling. I think that was about 12 years ago, two guys, Chris Thompson and David Kutzepol, uh, who were basically bike racing, wanted a place to aggregate content and aggregate race results. And they started, they're both it kind of guys. So they started, a a blog of 303 cycling and it grew over time. And then 303 triathlon was added, I think about seven or eight years ago, Dana Willett, who probably some of your listeners might know, she kind of ran that. I jumped in five, five, six years ago, I guess, starting writing articles and selling a few ads. And then there was a, a period of time where somebody was trying to basically wanted to buy us. And I didn't really want to go with the entity that was buying us. And so they decided they weren't as interested. And then, uh, so I, I made an offer to all the partners and said, how about I buy it? And that's sort of how it came to be. And, uh, trying to put a little different lifestyle twist into it as opposed to just sort of focusing on races and events. Um, but more lifestyle. I'm just writing an article right now about a almost two week long trip. I just took around the state of Colorado exploring gravel bikes and road bikes and taking some hikes and what, things in the people, you know, people in the endurance space might enjoy. Yeah. My familiarity, uh, with, uh, the website and uh, with the company in general comes from my experiences uh, doing triathlon. Of course, I've seen uh, your logo all over the place. Uh, when I was uh, fortunate enough to qualify for Kona, I got a lot of uh, nice swag uh, with the 303 emblem on it. And <laughs> I got to meet up uh, with some folks in uh, Hawaii because of that. Um, but I know that uh, you've had a huge impact. Uh, you've certainly got a great network here um, with race directors and with uh, many of the athletes. And uh, I, for one, have been very appreciative of your influence uh, in, the, in the community here in Colorado. So what have you seen in your interactions with race directors and with athletes? How hard has this year been uh, in 2020? Um, I mean, besides the obvious just personal impact, what do you see in terms of uh, actual business impact for people here in the state? Oh man. I mean, it's devastating. Uh, you know, just clearly devastating to races, of course, and, and events. I mean, you know, I think I, I don't know numbers, but I know that, you know, take Lance Panaguti, for instance, of without limits, they've, they just now started having some of their stroke and strides, but they've had zero revenue all year for the most part. Um, so that, that obviously is a terrible impact. And, um, he, he's hoping to have some cyclocross races this fall, which will help out. But, you know, a lot of these guys work kind of a year ahead of time. So most, you know, if they've kind of got their ducks in a row, so to speak, they'll be okay to survive for now, even Ironman. But if this goes another year, I think we're going to see some major problems. Yeah. And that's, that's the, I mean, you know, unfortunately people pay entry fees and, you know, I think the races have done a good job for the most part in trying to offer them the best they can, whether it's partial refunds or credit towards future races. And I know some people have been frustrated with Ironman a little bit more than maybe the others because it's a lot more money and people are, they'd kind of like their money back, I think, but you know, money's spent so much ahead of time. Um, that's yeah, you know, I have had that conversation over and over and over again. I feel like I've been banging my head against the wall. People seem to have all kinds of problems understanding how this business operates, and it's not a cash-rich industry. 
And, you know, there's all these people making all kinds of noises about Iron Man. And boy, I'll tell you, if Iron Man disappears and all those races go away because either A, they're forced to refund all this money or B, they just can't survive. You're going to hear all kinds of complaints about, oh, I wish I had my Iron Man races. And I'm <laughs> like, boy, you people are really short-sighted when you start making a big fuss about your, you know, I, I get it. I mean, this is a really hard time for everybody and having a few hundred dollars back is, is a big deal. But I think people need to think long game and what's really going to be important to them in a year or two when they really want to get back to racing if those races aren't there. Yeah, I, I and I think that, you know, you see like, Breakaway Athletics up in Fort Collins are going to have an event at the end of the month. Um, Paul Carlson, who I interviewed yesterday, two days ago, he's having the Lookout Mountain Try here in Golden. And those are all, you know, 150 to 250 type people. So, for instance, at Lookout Mountain, he was given permission to have no more than 175 people on site, meaning that he could have people out racing the course and still be under the, I guess, health guidance, so to speak. So, I think you're going to see those kinds of races happen. I mean, obviously this season is ending here in Colorado at least. So there's only another month of good weather for racing, but that's, I was also down at USA triathlon last week and interviewed a couple of Olympic hopefuls. And we were talking about that same exact thing. And from their lens, looking across the country, you know, there's definitely, you're starting to see a lot more smaller races being offered. Um, that could be the trend for the next couple of years, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, in my discussions with Lance, uh, as well as Michelle Lund a little earlier in the year, we talked about that break even point. Like, you know, how many people is are necessary to make a race profitable? Uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to Jill and Darren, the other big players here in Colorado for local races. Uh, they're having a race uh, coming up as well. They were able to get permission to do their little foot triathlon. And I, I've spoken to a lot of people who are just super excited that they're able to do this. But I mean, these races aren't cheap to put on in terms of permitting. And then you've got to have enough people on the water to uh, support the swim. Uh, I know athletes are worried because like, I mean, for myself, I haven't been in a pool since February, I think. And I mean, the idea of getting into a, a you know, an open water situation is not really exciting for me. Um, I'm, uh, you know, duathlons, I think would be more of interest, but then, you know, if you've only got 150 people, are you going to really spread things across different types of events? Uh, so I, I wonder, uh, in your conversations, is there an appetite to raise race fees to try and recoup the losses from having smaller fields? I have not had that conversation. That's a good, that would be an interesting question though. Um, it, it may come down to, there's no choice, but to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be unfortunate because I think you'd get into this, you know, those who can afford it end up racing. But I mean, I, I feel for the race organizers who need to stay alive in order to make it through these tough times. And I, for one, would be willing to pay more for the opportunity to do a race if it meant that that organizer would you know, be able to stick it out. I almost wonder, too, though, if you could ever see a scenario where maybe triathlon clubs, a little bit like cycling clubs, host races that are sanctioned by the USA Triathlon, let's say, and that they use all of their volunteer and their own budget to pay for most of it and keep entry fees lower. I wonder if that could be a potential model someday, too, where there's just a lot of smaller local races that are sort of club oriented. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that I, you know, you're not going to replace somebody like Lance Panagudi very easily with quality race directing, but it's going to be, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, 
I, I don't know. Have you had any conversations with the folks at uh, the Evergreen Bike Club to, to get their sense about what might happen with the triple bypass? No. Um, I mean, a little bit with Jennifer Barber. Um, I mean, they've, I mean, that's not happening this year, but um, I don't know what their future, I mean, I think they're trying just, I think they're planning just to have next year, just like normal at this point. So I, I don't, I don't know anything else than that, but I have talked to them a little bit here and there and they're trying, they're looking at doing a, a like a double, triple, even in one day kind of thing um, as some ultimate challenges out there. I think their club's doing well, I think. Um, but I've not heard anything different about the triple bypass. Yeah. I had some contact with the uh, Rocky mountain cycling club, which is uh, of course the real long distance cyclers. And right. uh, they had to shut down all of their planned events. They continue to do most of their stuff in an unsupported individual way or in small groups. Um, but they have a very long history as a, as a group and that, that they'll be fine. They'll make it through. I would imagine evergreen cycling group will as well. Uh, but you really feel for all the folks who really look forward to these one-off events. Uh, Copper Triangle, I imagine, will survive as well. But again, uh, these are iconic uh, one-day events that people look forward to, you know, a good year in advance. And uh, I am really, you know, interested to see what comes next year because I think by next year we're going to be in that sort of phase where people are going to be like, okay, this virus is here. We have to figure out how to adapt and do things with it. And I think what we're seeing on the local stage with small races, I wouldn't be surprised to see that expand into bigger races as well. And uh, I won't be surprised to see larger events happening, even though the virus is still not under control. Uh, It's just going to be a matter of people accepting risks and the event organizers having to figure out how to mitigate them. Yeah. That, and obviously the local County, are they willing to let that happen or not? I mean, I, you know, one thing I did recently on this trip I took was I supported the, we ride Four cycling club, which evolved out of the wish for wheels this last year. And they, that group has been pretty strong supporters of ride the Rockies, which is, you know, is canceled. So they formed their own ride, ride, ride the Rockies. There was 20 some riders and they just did a little four, four day loop around Crested Butte. You know, they hired Summit Cycling Solutions, who's a logistics company that works with Ride the Rockies, for instance, and they provided bag transport, hotel accommodations. And they, you know, these riders each paid, I think 700 bucks or 800 bucks, something like that. And then they rode their ride. Um, There was minimal support on the road. They had a couple of one aid station sort of things that were just pretty informal that Cycling Solutions put out some, you know, (laughs) pop tarts and, whatever. And, um, but you know, it worked and I wouldn't be surprised to see more things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And gravel, gravel biking has continued. Uh, I mean, not with the kinds of events we're used to, uh, you and I talked last week about SPT gravel and how successful their virtual series was. Uh, I would not at all be surprised to see them come back next year and have an event of some, kind of size in steamboat itself that was such a huge success in its inaugural year and those organizers have really done a terrific job Uh, i know that the pony express gravel championships is planned for this coming weekend i believe and uh is uh being done in a socially distanced uh you know 
virus conscious kind of way. Um, so, you know, there are events happening and I think they will be a model for what we can hope to see. Have you heard um, anything from your contacts about what Ironman has in store or what the major events are thinking about? <laughs> I have not. They play pretty close to the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't honestly tried too hard. I'm kind of letting a lot of this take its course. Um, I'm sort of the mindset that I think everything's canceled to hear otherwise. And uh, I don't think, I don't even know if Ironman Arizona is technically canceled yet. I, I think it. they're hanging on. They're, I think they're, they're hanging on too. I, I, Florida is the same. They're kind of just waiting till the last minute, which is driving. I know a lot of people crazy because they don't, they all think it's going to be canceled, but they're still training as if it's not. So it's kind of like, you know, their heads are half and half in it and I feel bad for them. But at this point, Arizona and Florida just don't seem like the ideal locations to have a no plus person event right now. So I, I, I don't expect either of those events to happen. Uh, Cozumel is still on the, the docket as well. And, and you know, I don't know what's going on in Mexico. Cozumel obviously hurting for tourist dollars. Uh, Mexico, one of the few places allowing Americans to visit. But I don't know. I don't know that I'd be getting on a plane to go do a race at this point. It just seems still a little risky given everything that is so up in the air right now in the fall. I mean, gosh, you know, we're heading into the fall. Schools are opening and we're already seeing the results of how the spread can kick up really fast when you start allowing people to congregate in small areas. So we'll right. see. I don't know. You know, you know, I, I, we, it's just so much that can change so quickly. It's hard to really predict what's going to happen next week. Never mind, you know, next month or the month after that. Well, what do you see uh, for the future of 303? Uh, you mentioned a combination into 303 Endurance, which is pretty exciting. Uh, any other uh, kind of growth plans that you guys have uh, thought about? Uh, we're, we're just going to keep improving our our podcast situation. We've got we've got Dave Scott on this week. We've got Siri Lindley on this week. we got Ashley, uh, I forget her last name. She won the gold medal last year in the Paralympics. So we're kind of taking this Mount Rushmore attempt at trying to get some of these folks on that you might put on the Mount Rushmore of this or that. And, yeah. and, uh, but also local, you know, I can, I really enjoyed meeting Paul Carlson and having a good chat with him about his triathlon. And I want to do that with more people. I mean, more original content. I've got some more ambassadors that would like to, um, come on board with some writing. For instance, Amy Morphis, uh, she used to be with Bicycle Colorado and now she's kind of doing her own thing and we're going to, we talked about doing some sort of advocacy column work. Um, just more, just more outreach into different communities that's not race oriented or not event oriented, but also more aspirational oriented. And maybe just my personal, I love, I love traveling around Colorado. I love sharing cool places with people that maybe they hadn't thought of. Um, just finishing up an article that will go out later today about my trip and some, some really neat bike rides people should think about that they probably have never heard about or thought about. I think this, I think the great American road trip is alive and well. And, um, I think if I offer offer people a few tidbits, it might be a great way to keep some engagement. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that's terrific. And, uh, one other thing I would, uh, uh, 
humbly suggest you think about is trying to get more diversity. I know that I've uh, made a point in uh, this podcast over the last few episodes of uh, trying to have more diversity uh, representatives uh, talking about why triathlon remains so you know, white and uh, talking to people from minority communities about their experience in triathlon. And I'd really like to see that more here in Colorado as well uh, and try and encourage the sport to become more reflective of the greater community, because I think that's the way the sport can really succeed is if it is no longer a niche, but really represents the population as a whole. So I'd love to see more of that throughout our sports. That's a great suggestion. And I, and I think that dovetails well into the cycling community as well. And, um, you know, it's record sales for bikes. There's more people riding bikes than ever. So how do we, how do we keep those new people engaged in the sport who later may decide to race their bikes or, or try a triathlon because they maybe came from a running background or a swimming background and, and they bought a new bike this year because everybody else seems to be buying a new bike. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in, in the, all of the sports um, because of the major increase in participation. I mean, you look at gym memberships, they're expecting 60% of people to not renew their memberships this year. That's a lot of people that are relying on at-home fitness equipment and/or bikes and/or running themselves, right? So yeah, it's not incredible about the bike sales. I was uh, talking with uh, somebody from American Bicycle Group uh, last episode, makers of Quintana Roo, amongst other, and uh, she was relating exactly that that their sales have been going like gangbusters this year. Uh, so even small bicycle manufacturers seeing great increases in sales. And it, it really does, like you said, give me a lot of hope for the future of the sport if, like you said, we can get through this period. Yeah, yeah, well. And I mean, bike racing starting to come back online and you have the Karen Hornbostel time trial in a couple of weeks, which is always a, a good multi-sport event as well as a cycling event. Um, yeah. So I think they're figuring it out. I mean – They've had a couple crits and that seems to be okay. I, I don't know. That one's a little tough with you when you have 40 to 50 guys all yeah. Yeah. super close. I'm not sure that one is optically as good as some other things, but they pulled off a few. Um, yeah. It's so too bad. Like, you know, the Colorado classic got canceled cause I just, you know, that's a cool event for women. You missed, mentioned diversity. That was a really marquee kind of event that I think, needs to keep that traction. So hopefully they can keep it going in the uh, next year so it can come back stronger. Yeah. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, right? I mean, that's all we can do at this point. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill Plock, uh, owner and operator of 303 Cycling, 303 Triathlon, soon to be 303 Endurance. Thank you so much for your time today and for an interesting conversation on the TriDoc Podcast. My pleasure. Love to have you on our show one of these days. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You can find archives of all the shows as well as a handy collections feature where I have grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Are you looking for medical references on the kinesio taping segment? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? For any of these, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, 
please visit try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with the promised interview with Fraser Atkinson, a sports psychologist who will give me some insights into the mental games that athletes play while training and racing. Of course, I'll also have another medical question to answer. But until then, train hard, train healthy.